This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2015. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. First John, uh, chapter five, <coughs> verses six to eleven. Then 13. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water, not only by water, but by water and blood. It is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. There are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. If he receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son has the witness in himself. He does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Have you ever considered that God is essentially, inherently positive? The overwhelming evidence of Scripture, and of Christian experience that God is a positive, affirmative God. Now, you may say, but what about all those restrictive, limiting, restraining commands? The thou shalt nots. Well, if you think about it, they are ultimately positive because they are for our good, and they're for God's glory. So they must be good, even though they may sound negative, but in the end they are very positive because they will help us and they will bring glory to God if we obey. Consider for a moment how positively the Bible speaks about God. Regarding God the Father, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. The Bible says that He dwells in ineffable light. He is surrounded by light because he is light. He is, the Bible says, the father of lights in whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. There's no dark or gray areas about God. God is light. Can somebody say amen to that? God the Son. All the promises of God are in him, yes, and in him, amen. See how affirming and positive that is. In fact, in Revelation 3, 14, it says, these things say the amen, the faithful and the true witness. God the Holy Spirit, right blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, 
There's a big shout, isn't it? There's a positive, affirmative statement. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. And so the God that we serve is inherently positive. The Holy Spirit even says yes to the saints who die in the Lord. God is positive about your salvation. The verses we just read, and it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. The Spirit bore witness to Christ because the Spirit is truth. But the same Spirit that bears witness to Christ is the same Spirit that bears witness that we are in Christ. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, Romans 8, 16. No witness is more positive than the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. In fact, you could go through your whole Christian life always doubting, always wondering, always just hoping that you're going to get to heaven, except for the witness, the positive, affirmative witness of the Holy Spirit. God never wants you to doubt your salvation. Do you hear me? Never wants you to doubt it. When you receive salvation as a gift from God, he does not want you to ever doubt that again. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of Son of God, that you might know that you have eternal life and that you continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. How much more affirmative could that possibly be that God wants you to know for absolutely certain that you're bound for heaven, that you're saved, that you're washed in the blood of the Lamb? Amen? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and He's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And so if we sin, if we confess our sin, if we say, Lord, I am truly sorry for my sin, then he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's positive, isn't it? In Romans 10, if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Thank you, Lord. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. God doesn't want you to be fuzzy, vague, ambiguous about your salvation. Psalm said in 107 verse 2, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. That's positive. That's affirmative, isn't it? We should say so. Let's not hide it under a candle or wondering or doubting if we are saved and born again, let's proclaim that and say so. 
God is positive about your salvation. God is positive about being filled with the Holy Spirit. Pentecost. What a positive affirmation of God's love for his church. How so, you may say. Consider that the 120 were in the upper room in Jerusalem. It had been 50 plus days since Jesus was arrested in that garden and they all scattered and fled. Jesus was taken to those mock trials, eventually to appear before Pilate. The order for his execution was given. He died upon that cross. He was buried in that grave. But thankfully, he rose triumphantly on the third day, as we were reminded just a couple of weeks ago at Easter time. And then for the next 40 days, he appeared to many, including the disciples. And at the end of 40 days, on the Mount of uh, Olives, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. So you can imagine that 50-plus days was a traumatic time. <laughs> it was a time of confusion, a time of fear and terror, a, a, a time of, of amazement, a time of triumph. And then the last 10 days in that upper room was a time of wonderment. What was going to happen? What was this power that Jesus talked about that they had to wait upon? And wait they did. What was it that caused these 120 men and women, just ordinary men and women? Uh, none of them were rabbinically trained. Unless, and it doesn't say, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus might have been there. We don't know that for sure. So none of them probably were theologians. Certainly none of them were captains of industry. None of them were savvy politicians. They were just ordinary men and women. But how could a bunch of ordinary men and women, how could they grow a church that has lasted over 2,000 years and today is the biggest religious movement on the face of planet Earth? How could they do that? Answer, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. That was the extra ingredient. That was the thing that absolutely launched the church around the world, even to this very day. Be filled with the Spirit is a command. Paul in Ephesians 5, 18, 19 says, Be not drunk with wine in which is access, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Every born-again believer, we need to be constantly, continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. That is an imperative. That is what we absolutely need for sure. I need that, you need that, we all need that, amen? That's the fuel that keeps us alive and keeps the light burning in us. 
We need the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, here we are reminded when the day of Pentecost had fully come, and they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men of every nation under heaven. And when this sound occur occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language, which we were born? Perithians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying one to another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said they're full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. And then in verse 38 and 39, and Peter said to them, Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children, and to all who are afar off, and as many as the Lord our God will call. God is positive about us receiving the Holy Spirit and living in the power of and the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 8, the evangelist Philip was having a tremendous revival in Samaria. Extraordinary things were happening. Wonderful, glorious things, miracles, people coming to Christ, men and women being baptized. And in verse 14, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them, they only had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. That seemed to be a priority for the apostles, for these believers now, new babes, to receive the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 10...
Peter at the house of Cornelius, the Roman centurion. Verse 34, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem whom they had killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly not to all the people but to witnesses chosen before by God even to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. And Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. And then Acts 19. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. And so we see here that throughout, throughout the period of the New Testament, that again and again and again and again, the Holy Spirit fell and came and took possession of men and women who believed. That is something that's positive. By the way, God was positive about speaking in other tongues too, in case you don't know. Do you know that? The Apostle Paul had to write to the Corinthian church because there was a lot of abuse going on, misuse and abuse. But he did say, I thank my God I speak in tongues more than you all. Hmm. It's just tongues is dead. Well, there's two types of tongues. There's personal tongues and then there's public tongues. Personal tongues is to edify yourself, he says, to build up yourself. So there's value and there's worth and there's purpose in speaking other tongues. And it's positive because the Corinthians messed it up at times does not mean that it in itself was not of worth or of value. And it's something that we should desire and to use uh, so let's not be afraid of it, and let's not poo-poo it, 
Uh, let's believe that it is for us and pray to that end. God is positive about being filled with the Spirit. God is positive about his church. Now, over the centuries, the church has had good times and bad times. Sometimes the church has been like a blazing torch of fire lit by God. Other times it's been like a tiny flickering candle, almost as if it was about to go out. But no matter what, Jesus said and affirmed, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen. The church is something that God loves. It's Christ's church. It's what he gave himself for. In Ephesians 5, and of course we preachers, we use this at just about every wedding we ever conduct. Ephesians 5, 25 and 27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he may present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. God has got a plan for his church. And part of that plan that will continue into the eternities, but part of that plan right now is so that we are being able to be presented without spot or blemish to Christ. And he'll do whatever it takes to get his church into that place. And so he has a lot of work to do, hasn't he? He has a lot of work to do in me. And for sure he's a lot of work to do in you too, hasn't he? But he will continue that work shaping us, molding us, cleansing us, getting us fit, having us ready to be presented. Uh, I've lost count of the many men and women who's come to this altar in marriage. Uh, and the man stands over there uh, and he waits for the bride to come. And he's almost, some of them, some's more bolder than others, but some are almost scared to look around, to have a wee sneaky peek. I just tell them, now go ahead and look. You're busting to see anyways, you might as well go ahead. And that's usually the first time they see the bride in the bridal gown. And all dolled up, as we say. And looking the part. Radiant, Beautiful. And it took some time and it took some effort to get to that place. But of course, the Lord's not talking about our outward appearance. He's talking about our inner beauty, our inner cleansing, so that we are a bride that is truly fit for the bridegroom. No wonder Satan hates the church. It is the visible manifestation of the invisible Christ on earth. No wonder he hates it. The church represents Christ on earth. We are his ambassadors. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. No wonder the Bible says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places.
In the last 100 years, I was just reading this the other day, in the last 100 years, there has been more Christians persecuted unto death than the previous 1,900 years. Now, when I say Christians, that includes nominal Christians, those who, they may not be born again, but they say, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and maybe have been brought up in a church who believes that. But simply because they believe that, simply because they believe that Jesus is the Son of God, been persecuted unto death by the hundreds of thousands, by the millions in this past 100 years. And today, even as we speak, it is increasing alarmingly. Yes, you say, I can see that on the television. I can see it in those Middle Eastern countries, and I can see it in North Africa and Afghanistan and all those places, and I can see that. But, but at this moment, there's another type of persecution that is in the Western church, coming against the Western church. The liberalization of laws that are definitely anti-Christian and anti-Christ, some of them. Uh, you wonder what's going to come in on the back of all of that. Will we be called radical fundamentalists that need to be put down and ostracized and put out of society? Will that happen to us? Very possibly. Very possibly. The world's a very small place, you know, isn't it? And it doesn't take many to start that happening. In Revelation chapter 6, if you want to just have a little look there for a moment. <coughs> Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. This is regarding the fifth seal, which was in a series of judgments on the earth. Then he opened the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for their testimony which they held. And he cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. And in Revelation 20, verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those, note this, who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness. Ah, beheaded. It's become very popular again, hasn't it? Suddenly we hear about it day and daily. It's not new in that sense. 
over the centuries, there's been phases and trends of it. Japanese would behead prisoners of war. So there's nothing new in that. But suddenly in the 21st century, where we're supposed to be enlightened and scientific and more moral and all of that nonsense that people say, suddenly we're being faced with a barbarism that's almost beyond belief. Now, from what that tells us in Revelation, because this is talking about the end of the end times, what that tells us, that that is not going to decrease, that's going to increase. That under the reign of Antichrist, that will be the norm. It was the norm during the French Revolution, wasn't it? Madame Guillotine. And it will be the norm in the reign of Antichrist. So all of these things are precursors warning us, showing us what is going to be in the future. God is positive about his church. The martyrs, by the way, will have a special dress. And we'll recognize them. We'll see them and recognize them. God is positive about his church. It's what his son came to die for. God is positive about the return of his son to this earth. Now, you may be forgiven for thinking, uh, why would the father send his son back to a place that was so cruel and wicked to his son and eventually murdered him and put him on a cross? Hmm. But for 2,000 years now, God's Son has been gathering up his inheritance. You and I, and untold millions like us, are his inheritance. The psalmist prophesied in Psalm 2, verse 7 and 8, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. So out of every nation and every tongue and every kindred, the Lord is gathering his inheritance. Ephesians 1, 17, 18, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you might know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. You are Christ's inheritance. And he's waiting for his full inheritance. Not quite complete yet. There's more to come in. God has got a claim on your life. You belong to his son. And Jesus is coming back for his inheritance. The Holy Spirit, in a sense, is the down payment of the purchase possession. The fact that you have the Holy Spirit residing in you is the proof, if you ever needed it, that you're Christ's inheritance and that he's coming back for you. (laughs) The Holy Spirit is the down payment, as it were, and he's coming back for you. 
So you can rejoice today. You're saved. You're born again. You've got the Holy Spirit. That's the, all the evidence you need that you're the inheritance of Christ. And he's promised to come back and receive you unto himself that where I am, there you may be also. So for the believer in Christ, there is nothing negative about Christ's return. I've just mentioned a couple of things there that we can foresee in the future, and that sounds pretty scary, doesn't it? But actually, there's nothing negative about Christ's return. Paul wasn't negative about it. Paul, writing about this very thing, the soon return of Christ, said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 17, 18, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. It should be a comfort to us that Christ is returning. Let me tell you, if you were a born-again believer living in the Middle East, and you were stuck up a mountain somewhere and you're surrounded by those IS death cult. The Lord's coming would be a big relief, wouldn't it? It's probably because we're so comfortable and nobody's saying boo to us. But I think those days are coming to a close pretty quickly. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. God is positive about you individually, personally. Not just the whole church of which you are a member, but you personally. Philippians 1 6. He who began a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Hmm. You never stop being a parent, sure you don't. It doesn't matter in what age your children live to be, you're always their parent, aren't you? It doesn't matter how old your son is. When I, I, mean, I was, well, in my 50s, and I'd go and visit my mother, and she'd say, have you got your hanky with you? <laughs> Only a mother would ask a grown man that question. And a married man at that. Or, did you get something to eat today, son? Do I look like somebody that didn't eat today? <laughs> but you never, ever stop being a parent. I, I remember one day I was in visiting my mother, and, you know, she, her mind was gone. She had no idea who I was. And I said to her, uh, do you know who I am? She says, no. I says, I'm your son, David. Oh, are you? She says. And she looked at me. And I says, and you've got a daughter called Sandra, and you've got a daughter called Jennifer, and quick as a flash says, I and we Lizzie. We Lizzie was her firstborn who died at 18 months. And she remembered that as clear as if it just happened. You never stop being a parent, you don't. And God looks at us as his dear children. And he doesn't give up on us. He who began a good work in you will complete it. Amen. Glory to God. Sometimes we give up on him, but he doesn't give up on us. Sometimes our children give up on us, but we don't give up on them. Sure we don't. 
because we're a parent. What else can we do? They're our flesh and blood. We love them. They'll make their mistakes. They'll mess up. They'll do all things that will displease us, sometimes anger us. But we still love them because they're ours. Looking onto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. If he's the author, he'll be the finisher. Paul writing to church at Thessalonica in chapter 2, verses 2, 16, 17 said, or 2 Thessalonians 2, 16, 17, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who loved us and has given us everlasting consolation and a good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. God wants to establish us. Now, again, come back to our children. We try to put into them all the good things that we have learned through experience in life to try to pass that on. In a sense, we're trying to establish them. You know, we're, we're trying to get them to grow up right as good citizens and be able to handle life. So we're trying to establish them. God is constantly working in us spiritually to establish us spiritually so that we're strong believers, that we're rock solid that we're not tossed about with every wave and every wind that comes and goes. Then he said in Thessalonians 2nd book, 3 and 3, But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Glory to God. You see, God is faithful to establish us. He that began a good work will be faithful to complete it. Can we trust him to complete it? Yes, we're human. Yes, we'll get it wrong. Yes, we'll make our mistakes. Will he not give up on us? He's got a job to complete in us. And as long as we're willing to say, sorry, Lord, I got that wrong, and we pick ourselves up, he dusts us down, sends us on again. Work's not finished. Still a lot of corners to knock off. Isn't that so? Well, maybe not for the rest of you, there is for me. You're looking very religiously at me. Paul said in Colossians 1, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. <laughs> Does that seem too good to be true? It almost seems too good to be true. Only God could present you and me blameless above reproach. <laughs> but he's still working on us. I love a little verse in Jude, Jude 24. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Hallelujah. 
What a moment that's going to be whenever we are presented by God to his son. Here is your bride. (laughs) She has made herself ready. Her lumps were full of oil and her wicks were trimmed. (laughs) And one day we shall go to meet the bridegroom. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, I'll finish with this. He writes this, What matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis, in the last analysis, the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. There's no moment when his eye is off me or his attention is distracted from me. And no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is momentous knowledge. This is unspeakable comfort in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery can disillusion him about me. In the way I am so often disillusioned about myself, and quench his determination to bless me. Somebody one time said that God has no, God will never be disillusioned with you because he never had any illusions about you in the first place. To be disillusioned, you have to have an illusion. And God had no illusions about us. We were sinners saved by his grace. (laughs) Isn't that lovely? And so Packer was right. He utterly loves us. He is positive about you and about me. And he's got a job to complete in us. And as long as we're willing, and as long as we are availing of ourselves to be completed by him, he'll get the job done. Some it will take longer than others, but he'll get the job done to present us faultless to his son. Amen? Let's pray. Lord we thank you for your vested interest in us we thank you that you gave your very life's blood for us you could not give any more than your own life and so we thank you for that What a blessing it is to know today that we belong to you. Come what may, we are yours for all eternity. We thank you, Lord. We bless you. We thank you that we are in the very palm of your hand today. Our life is hid with Christ in God. And we bless you for that. And so, Lord, we return today our thanks and our praise and our adoration for your goodness and mercy to each of us. We thank you for that, and we bless you.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can also watch the Sermon of the Month video at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal or download the sermon video through our iTunes video podcast. For more information, visit us at www.mpc.org.uk. Thank you.